Amen. Turn in your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 3. Last week we looked at the first 12 verses of this third chapter of 1 Peter, and this morning we're going to, Lord willing, look through the rest of the passage. Now, in these verses, there are two of the strangest statements that are made in the New Testament, and passages that are a real problem to interpret and have led to all sorts of crazy um, theories and ideas based on these verses. It, and, but the verses are simply illustrations of what Peter's saying, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on them. But, um, you know, it's funny, Peter over in Second Peter in the last chapter was talking about Paul, and he said, Paul has written a lot of books that are scripture, but he said, a lot of the stuff Paul says is really hard to understand. And then Peter, in this chapter, says two of the weirdest things that you can find in the New Testament. And this morning in the green room, we were talking about it. Why do you think Peter wrote it the way he did? Because it's so confusing. And I said, well, you hire a fisherman to write a book, and that's kind of what you get. But <laughs> um, the two things that he says... Down there, he talks about these spirits that were in prison and Noah, the flood, and all. And it's from that, the, it's the only passage that the Catholics can use to support the idea of purgatory. The idea that after you die, you go to a place for some further working over, and eventually, you know, good things happen, hopefully. Uh, other people have taken the whole idea of universalism, that everyone after they die gets one more chance to hear preaching. And it comes from what Peter says in these verses. And then he follows that up with another statement that says that baptism saves us. And so people who believe in what we call baptismal regeneration, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, love this passage. Now, I think that both of these passages are misinterpreted generally, and so naturally I will try to give you a common sense explanation of them when we get to it. But it's important not to dwell on two things that are simply illustrations. The point that Peter was teaching on was not about these spirits who were in prison who were preached to, nor was it about baptism per se and as it's involved in our salvation. His point to the passage we see earlier, and then I think the explanation will be more satisfying to you as you see how it how it supports what he's trying to say. So I'm just letting you know, if you fall asleep during the message and you wake up during a weird time, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> now let's remember what he, Peter has been teaching us. For the last couple chapters, he has been saying, the only chance you have of influencing others is by acting differently than others. If you react the way other people treat you, you're never going to make an impression on them. You will be just like them. But the Lord wants to touch the hearts of people who don't get it, and the only way they're going to get it is if they see something different about us. And this involves a risky maneuver, as he called us to submission to government officials, as he called servants to adjust themselves even to an evil master as he calls wives to deal with a husband who's a creep at times and who doesn't, who doesn't get it. 
And all of these things, and then ultimately, I mean, he says things like dwell with them with understanding, value, all people, show the grace of life, have compassion to one another, and be courteous, be loving, be tenderhearted in verse 8. Don't return evil for evil, but bless other people. And then he quotes that Psalm 39 there in verses 10 through 12 and says, if you love life and you want to see good days, don't say bad stuff, don't fool people, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it because God sees what's going on. Now, as soon as you hear someone calling you to this kind of radical responsiveness, immediately it causes us to go, but wait a minute. You know, I want to treat people the way they treat me. And that's completely justified. If someone is mean to you and you're mean back to them, that's fair. But he's not calling us to be fair. He's calling us to do something that's mind-blowing to people who see it. And that is grace. Peter later says that it's the kindness and the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. It's not that justice. It's not payback. But when he tells us to do this, our first thought is, wait a minute. Because what if it doesn't work? And often I think we are in error when we teach that, you know, and often this really happens when you're talking about marriage, that, oh, if a woman is just really nice to her husband, even when he's a jerk, then it's, it has this magical transforming effect and he's going to become a wonderful person. In real life, a lot of times, if you treat people really nice when they don't deserve it, they only take advantage of you. It doesn't work. It doesn't even probably work most of the time. It's the only shot you have at it working, but it doesn't always work. And so we just go, but wait a minute, why am I even doing this? Why do I need to be the one to be kind and gentle when people aren't that way with me? Won't I just get stepped on? Won't I be taken advantage of? Isn't this going to cost me and, and just not be fruitful at all? And so Peter knows that people are feeling that way. And so here in verse 13, he says, first of all, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? In other words, if you live this way, do you really think that most people are just going to deliberately crush you? Um, as we'll see, some will. But he said, hey, if people are picking on you, is it really because you're so nice? Because you're so humble? Because you're so kind and loving? Is it because you've been gentle? Is that really what the problem has been? And for most of us, we would admit, no, people don't like us because we've given them good reasons to not like us. And they are challenged by our arrogance, and they are upset by our judgmentalism, and when we act like we are holier than they are, that's what bugs them an awful lot of the time. It's not when we serve others. People in general will appreciate someone being nice to them when they aren't being nice. So Peter first says, now, first of all, when you respond this way, people aren't going to instantly take advantage of you. That's not automatically going to happen. A lot of people will just appreciate. Some people will take advantage of you just by, by benefiting, and maybe they won't change, but at least they're going to say, yeah, but you're a nice guy, but yeah, you're a nice girl. 
But, he says in verse 14, that's not in every case, but even if the possibility is there that you will suffer, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. He said it's not the worst thing in the world if you do suffer because of extending your love and concern for others, and even if they don't respond, you're suffering for righteousness' sake, that's not so bad. There's a blessing that comes with that. Now, he is stating this, and I think it, it gives us a really important principle of life that often we never learn. He's talking about fear. He's talking about people who are afraid to do what God says to do because they're afraid it won't work, and they're afraid that they will be taken advantage of, and they will be hurt, and they will be crushed. And Peter doesn't say, don't worry. People will love it if you do this, and no one will ever persecute you because he knows that's not the case. Often we are afraid to be the way he has been telling us to be for the last two chapters because we're afraid it won't work, because we're afraid of what it is going to cost us. And so rather than to say, oh, no, that's not going to happen to you, he says, even if it happens. It's worth it. You will be blessed even if other people are persecuting you. Now, in our lives, there are so many things that we don't do because we are afraid of what will happen or won't happen if we do them. And most people live their entire lives scared of consequences, sometimes consequences that never happen. And we weren't created to function in fear. But if we weren't created a function in fear, it means that there has to be some kind of risk to our lives. And Peter is acknowledging, yes, if you're going to be like this, there is a risk. There is a potential cost, but there's a blessing that goes even with that. And it's important to face that. You know, until you face your fears, you will always be enslaved to your fears. And the scripture tells us only God is the only one we should fear. We shouldn't fear anyone else. Most of us spend our lives afraid of everything. Death. Death is something that happens to all of us, eventually, unless the Lord returns before some of us die. Um, A lot of people, and when they've polled people and tried to analyze, supposedly on average, people are worried about death every couple minutes. It's one of the greatest thoughts, one of the greatest fears that people have, right up there with public speaking, by the way, is, is right at the top, um, which is kind of funny. Um, but I can see similarities. But here's the thing. If you're afraid to die, then you're also going to, afraid to, you're also going to be afraid of almost everything else. Because everybody who dies, dies doing something. You would not fly, you would not drive, you would not stay home because most people die at home. You'd never go to the hospital because a lot of people die in the hospital. You just live your life going, oh no, I don't want to die. But if you live your life afraid to die, you'll never actually live either until you find that certain risks are worth it. And coming to the point where you just go, you know what, I could die, but I'm okay with that. I'm not afraid to die. I am willing to die. I know it's going to happen. Woody Allen said, I know, I don't, I don't mind dying so much as I just don't want to be there when it happens. But, <laughs> but, you know, in life, 
sometimes the way to deal with something that you're afraid of is just to face it and to say, okay, this could happen. You know, I talk to people every week who are struggling with fear. Sometimes, and several of them, it's just heartbreaking because some people's lives are just overcome with depression, for instance. And when depression, everyone deals with depression of some sort, but when depression gets really chronic is when you get to the point where you're depressed about the fact that you're depressed. That's when it becomes that death spiral. You just feel like this isn't going to get any better. I was talking to someone this week who was just saying, I said, what are you really afraid of? And they said, I'm afraid that I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. And that scares me. And I said something that was kind of shocking to this person, but I believe it's one of the keys to life. I said, you know, Paul talked about the fact that he learned how to be content in every situation. Can you accept the fact that if God has a purpose in your life for allowing this, that maybe you will be depressed the rest of your life? Are you okay with that if it's something that that God is going to do in your life? And that's a hard question to answer because for one thing, we're so superstitious that we are afraid that if we say something's okay with us, then God's going to do it. You know, like people go, oh, I don't ever want to tell God that it's okay if he wants to call me to Africa because I don't want to go to Africa. And I know as soon as I say that, he'll make me do it. Um, If I say, God, you can kill me right now, I know he's just going to kill me. But God's not like that. But he does want us to not live in fear of consequences of things, choices that we make when we are obedient to him. And so here, just like someone who is plagued with depression needs to start by saying, this is what it is, this is what I'm dealing with, and I accept this. It's okay with me. I'm not going to fight against it. That's not going to instantly cure it. But the thing is, here's what happens to people emotionally. We burn up so much energy worrying about things and trying not to be a certain way. And the truth is, life in itself requires a lot of energy. And you cannot afford to burn up your energy trying to wish that things aren't the way they are. Life begins when you accept life as it is. And so that's why Peter comes and just goes, look, Chances are people aren't going to beat you up just because you're nice. But it could happen, and you need to understand, that could end up even being a blessing. That could end up being worth it. Now he goes on and says, and he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. He said, don't be afraid. Don't let fear dictate your choices. And remember the context. He's saying, be gracious. Be loving. Extend yourself. React in a way that surprises people because you don't fire back. And in doing that, In responding that way, you will see that God opens up great opportunities. Remember when, you know, the first time you ever liked someone, somebody of the opposite sex, and 
You know, you looked at them and you were like, oh man, I, I want to talk to them, but I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to do that. Now, maybe your first experience at stepping out of your shell didn't work out so good. You know, maybe you approached someone and, and you got burned, you got hurt. Maybe not. Maybe the first person that you approached just responded to you and it was just like you dreamed it would be. But for most people, they find themselves struggling and trying and reaching out to people who don't reach out to them. But ultimately, is love worth that? It, and, and often it is. It isn't always. Some of you are going, I wish I had never reached out in the first place. I wouldn't be in this mess. But, you know, you, you have that frustration. I used to say before I met Anne, you know, I used to say, I can have any woman I please. Problem is, I just don't please any. So, <laughs> but eventually, something happens and you go, this was worth what I went through getting here. It was worth me, when I met Anne, eating some vegetables and doing some other things so that I could protect her from who I really was enough that I could con her into loving me. And then once she loved me, then she was okay with the hot dogs and stuff. But, <laughs> but Peter is saying that fear is going to keep you from all the blessings of life, ultimately. And so again, he's, don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of what you'll miss. Be afraid of missed opportunities more than you're afraid of taking a chance. The more that you reach out, the more you'll realize, you know what, I can even be rejected and still be okay with it. You know, there are times when you just, God might lay someone on your heart and you just feel like, I want to go over there and tell that person that God loves them. I want to go over there and see that person and just go, you know, can I, I don't know, I just feel God landed on my heart. Could I pray with you? Now, it's not going to work every time. It may not even work most of the time. But imagine what it feels like when you just step out and you go, this is kind of embarrassing, but can I pray with you? And somebody goes, you cannot believe that's exactly what I need right now. Please do. And you go, yeah, I, li I listened to God and, and I extended myself and I took that chance and, and it worked out. Don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That word sanctify means to set apart or to make holy or to put in a unique position. What Peter is saying is take the Lord and give him the center of your heart. Put him in there and say, you know what? Nothing else, no one else is going to tell me how to live. I want to hear from God, and I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do, even if it looks stupid, even if people make fun of me, even if they persecute me as a result of it. I just want to listen to his voice. We listen to too many voices. We listen to too much input. And, and there are so many things in our hearts we were, on Wednesday night, we were studying in Luke's gospel where Jesus talked about our treasure. And he, he talked about how important it is to take what you have, your possessions, and, and give some, sell them or whatever, and give to the Lord. That giving to the Lord is something that is involved with where your heart is. Because he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
Now, your heart will always be where your treasure is. And for most of us, we have divided hearts because there are a lot of things we care about. And so the fact that I'm afraid to reach out to someone tells me that even though I care about them, I also care about me. I also care about how I'm going to feel if I'm rejected. And so I don't want to take that chance. Other times, my heart is consumed with material things. It's just, you know, I can wake up in the morning and have life just ruined for the day because my car's stolen or, you know, I found out my house depreciated or my stock went down or something that I have broke and I can't afford to fix it or I'm, you know, I found out my job is in jeopardy or whatever. If, if stuff is in your heart, then stuff dictates how you live your life. And so that's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so Peter says, put God in that place. Nothing should scare you more than going against what God wants to do. And you can't put other people in your heart. You can't live your life afraid of what other people are going to think. If so, you're not making choices and you're not listening to God. You're only focusing on what other people want. And listen, no one has a right to be sanctified in your heart except God. He is the one who is there, and we need to say, I must obey God rather than men. I need to do what God says. And so Peter says, put him in that special place and clear it out. Go, sorry, nothing else belongs here. There's a place in my heart at the very center where only God belongs. And he says, when you do that, you'll take risks when you do that, you'll be willing to face persecution. When you do that, you'll take a chance. Because ultimately, your eye is on him, and you're living your life for an audience of one, just wanting to please the Lord. And so he says, do that. And then he says, and always be ready to give a defense. The Greek word there is apologia, from which we get the word apologize, but apologize didn't mean back then what it means now, like, whoops, I'm sorry. Um, it was more of a defense. It was more of a, I'm telling my side of the story in a legal proceeding. And we get the word apologetics from that, and that's close, where people are defending Christianity against other um, systems of faith. But he says... Be ready to give that apologia to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When we think of apologetics, we think in terms of, I want to go find somebody who believes something wrong, and I'm going to just nail them. I got my Book of Mormon back here. I have my, you know, the JW's version of the New Testament here. I've got, I can't wait, man. If I can find somebody, I'm just going to nail them, and I'm going to apologize their heads in because they're going to, you know, I'll force them to see the truth. And often we see apologetics as being a real combative thing. I love C.S. Lewis talking about apologetics said, you defend God the way you defend a lion. Open the cage and get out of the way. <laughs> but here he isn't talking about that. He's not talking about convincing people that they are wrong and that you are right. That, in fact, God's never worried about that at all. Never worried about arguing with people. Never wanted to. But look what it says. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or an explanation to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope 
that is in you. This isn't talking about telling people why they're wrong. This is living your life in such a way that people are blown away and they just go, how'd you do that? How does that happen? How are you able to be so caring and so gracious? I was just rude to you and you were so kind to me. How's that work? I'm riding with you in the car and somebody cuts you off and you just back off and let them in and and wave at them, and you're really nice. If somebody does that to me, I'm waving my fist and other things at them, and I'm just furious that now I'm 20 feet back further in line in the traffic. See, the life that God has called us to live is a life that eventually will attract attention. And the attention is supposed to be good attention. As Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But it's all about, here it's all about the hope, a reason for the hope. That word hope means optimism, an excited expectation, a looking forward to. So here's the deal. When we live our lives in a way that blows people's minds because we don't react like everyone else does, their reaction ought to be, how in the world are you so positive? How in the world can you do what you do? How can you still care about people? How are you able to be loving in light of what your life has been like, in light of how people treat you? And that is something that just baffles people. That is something that just absolutely blows people's minds. And he says, get ready for that. If you are obeying what he's just said in chapters 2 and the last part of 3, And if you're just always trying to respond to rudeness with kindness and love, then eventually somebody's going to notice. And they're going to go, excuse me, but I know you're going through a hard time right now, but you still care about others. And I've noticed that, you know, your husband treats you like a jerk, but I see you being really nice anyway. And I, I know that people have taken advantage of you, and yet you still seem to care about them and you, and you really want them to be satisfied. That's the kind of behavior that gets noticed. And that's the kind of behavior that will open up an opportunity for you to explain how come you can be so positive in such a negative world, in a world that's surrounded by people who just want to fight with each other. How come you have faith? How come you believe? And he goes, Get ready for that. Now, if you are living your life like everyone else, and when somebody's mad at you, you're mad at them back. If somebody strikes out at you, you strike back. If you're living your life full of anger and stress and tension, don't even bother getting ready for an answer because nobody's going to ask you the question. It's not going to happen. And it's kind of convicting when you think, how many times do we have someone even ask us How come you're so positive? How come you are so optimistic? What's up with the the faith and the hope that you have about the future? And see, we don't get asked that, so instead we have to get ready to go blast people who don't ask. And we spend our time trying to give people answers when they haven't even asked the critical question. What's different about you? There's something about you that's stunning, you know, some of the, the gals who shared at the women's conference yesterday, uh, 
and Terry Green and her daughter Taylor and Sally McRae, as they shared, each of them, about things that they went through that would have made anyone just bitter and upset. And then you look at them and you see the joy and you see just how what God has worked and you just you want to go, how in the world did this happen? Why can you go on when I know people who have hung it up and given up when they haven't been through half of what you've been through? Well, that's what Peter's talking about. He says, live your life in obedience with Jesus Christ at the center of your heart and do what he tells you to do and then get ready because an opportunity is going to come up whereby you will be able to share the miraculous power of God. And he says, to do that with meekness and fear, not with arrogance, not with, it's about time you ask. You know, I've been nice to you for years, and you've never wondered, and now I'm going to tell you, here's the deal. Here's why I'm better than you. <laughs> you know? Not it at all. It's the feeling of, you know what? There's nothing special about me. It's not, it's not that I've done some great things. God's just been so good to me. I'm blessed. And if you followed me around every day, you'd see plenty of times when I act just like anybody else. But if you're, if you're detecting a hint of, of love in me in response to something that isn't loving, then that's just him. He's in my heart. He's, he's making that happen. He is doing that. And so that's the spirit of what Peter is saying here. And then he goes on having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone you treat this way is going to end up being embarrassed by their own selfishness, and then they'll repent. But that's the only shot you have. You will never change anyone. You will never see lives transformed by you overpowering people by you forcing people, by you manipulating people. The only shot we have is that maybe, just maybe, when we humble ourselves and when we respond with love to things that aren't loving, maybe it'll sink in someday. Now, that doesn't mean you just focus all of your attention on winning one person over, because the point here is, really, you can't win them all. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But the only shot we have is in shaming people by the way that we don't act like they act. If we act like they act, it causes them to feel justified in the way that they are. And so he says, this is something that, you know, with a good conscience, whatever they say about you, maybe a few of them might be ashamed at how they've acted. And you'll see real transformation. And maybe people will be drawn to Jesus Christ by the love that you show to them. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He goes, you know, life hurts regardless. You're going to suffer. It's not like, oh, let's see, do I suffer or don't I? He said, no, it's about, do you want to suffer for doing good or do you want to suffer for doing bad? It just makes more sense to suffer for doing good. And then he says, for, and he uses Jesus as the illustration, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. This great statement of, 
of the substitutionary atonement, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's that great switch where he took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. And he did that in order that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. You know, did you ever think about the fact that Jesus died and yet how few people actually respond? And, and this is disturbing to some people. And Theologically, people will quarrel with this to the point where they decide one of two extremes. They will either decide toward limited atonement that would say Jesus only ever wanted to save a few people, and so he only died for those who were elect. On the other hand, and, and the reason they would say that is very simple. They can't bear to think that some of Jesus' death was a waste, that he died for someone who won't get saved. On the other hand, you have people over on the other end of the spectrum, the other far end, um, universalists, who believe ultimately that everyone will be saved. Because they say Jesus died for everyone, therefore everyone has to get saved. And that makes sense to us, because we don't know what people are worth. The truth is, if Jesus had died for you and nobody else ever responded, and you were the only one that responded, he would have done it. Without a second thought, without a hesitation. And he isn't feeling like, I'm so bummed, I have this big party in heaven and most of the people don't show up. No, he goes, you know what? If you don't want to come, no problem. We'll go find other people. We'll go to people. We'll go to other countries. We'll go to other cultures. We'll, don't worry. The party will be full because everyone is supposed to be there will be there. But Peter's point here is that Jesus was willing to be abused and mistreated because somebody was supposed to get saved. Someone was going to respond to him. Now, in light of that, now we come to these strange passages, and I'll, I'll do my best to try to help them to just apply some common sense here and hopefully make sense of them. He says in verse 19, By whom, that is by the Spirit, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Huh? <laughs> now, some people take this passage and they go, it's obvious that after people die, Jesus still preaches to them and, and gives them an opportunity to get saved. The problem is the scriptures tell us the opposite. It's appointed on a man once to die and after that, the judgment. So whatever it means, it can't mean that. Now, the whole tie-in with Noah causes people to go, maybe just the people who died in the flood. They got kind of ripped off. They didn't know what was happening. And so maybe Jesus went and preached. After he died, he went and preached to the people who died in the flood. Or maybe everyone before the flood, before there was complete revelation. So that's a theory. Then there are people who go, you know, this is a really weird verse. So let's put it with the other weirdest verse in the Bible. And over in Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God came, co-inhabited with the daughters of men, and these giants came up, Genesis 6. 
And so, and there are several ways to interpret that passage, but some people interpret that passage to mean that demons had physical relations with humans, and these superhero giants came out of it, and the flood was made in order to kill giants off. And so then they take that theory, and they put it with this, and somehow tie the spirits in prison, and that that these, these demons who had human offspring, Jesus went and preached to them. But usually they say, but they couldn't respond. He was just preaching to them to rub their noses in it. So that's one way to take it. None of these really make sense to me in light of the context. It seems clear that his context, the emphasis is, look, only eight people got saved so in the flood. In the flood. So, so what does this mean? Who was preaching in the days of Noah? Noah. For 120 years, as he built the ark, he was preaching and inviting people to come on board. Until the day that God closed the door of the ark, there was an invitation to everyone, hey, come on board. So let's suppose the spirits who are now in prison were simply, as it says, those who were disobedient before, formerly. So so let's say he's talking about people who died in the flood, rejecting God, passing up an opportunity on the ark. So they went to a place that could be called prison. Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man, another difficult passage, but it talks about a place of torment where people go who were not righteous. The people who put their faith in God would go to Abraham's bosom, another compartment of the afterlife. So since there was torture going on there, it's easy to see how those spirits, the people who had rejected the message that the Holy Spirit was preaching, that really Jesus was preaching through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, then because they rejected it, now they're in prison and they died. And so if you look at it, and, and he just says, by whom also he, the Spirit, went and preached to the spirits who are now in prison, who formerly, see, the fact that he says they were formerly disobedient, now they're in prison, that sets up that, that uh, paradigm. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, 120 years, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So I don't think it's weird I think he's just simply picking an illustration and saying, remember when the whole world was a mess? And for 120 years, grace was preached. You can get on the ark and save yourself. And yet only eight people responded, and they were the close family members of the preacher. I mean, and a bunch of his relatives didn't even come on. Uh, animals do much better, by the way, and they tend to. <laughs> Animals have a much greater sense of God's leading than people do. And so the animals are like, sure, I'm in. <laughs> just walked up two by twos. They're like, a cruise, great. So while the people were, for 120 years, the people were making fun of Noah, the animals are posing next to the ship's wheel with the photographer to go on their cruise, and eight people made it. But what happened with those eight people? The world got a fresh start. The world was repopulated. The hand of God was on them. So doesn't that make sense that he's saying, to God, eight people were worth it. 
Eight people were worth a 120-year building project and a, and a salvage operation of civilization in order to bring about the deliverance that God wanted to give. And so Peter's just using this as an illustration and going, look, you're worried because most people don't get you, but Noah preached for 120 years, and the Spirit was in him, was preaching through him, and just like Jesus was rejected by most people, when Jesus went to the cross, he was rejected by almost everyone, but he thought it was worth it. In the same way that Noah thought it was worth what he went through for eight people to be saved. And that's the principle. That's the way God works. So I think this is a beautiful illustration of it. And then he goes on and says in verse 21, there is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. Oh, great. Baptism saves us? So it's easy for people to go, see, you can't be saved until you're baptized. Now, I could teach that. Could have taught it before our baptism, probably have a lot more people being baptized. But obviously, and he goes on to say, no, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, baptism is another example that connects to, and is kind of opposite in a way, an anti-type, this word, it's just anti-typos in the Greek. It's only used one other time in the New Testament over in Hebrews. But the word type means an imprint of something. It looks just like it. It's, um, for those of you who are too young to remember typewriters, a typewriter was this thing that would take a, an outline of a letter and it would stamp it through ink onto a piece of paper. You can Google it and see pictures of some or... <laughs> They're probably for sale on eBay, really expensive. But an anti-type, anti means instead of or opposite or contrary to. And so he says, in a different sort of way, baptism is a symbol of this same principle. Because even as, and you have to go with this a little bit, but in the same way that eight people went in the boat and they went in the water, when they came out, the world was fresh and new, and there was a fresh start with only eight of them. He said, baptism is kind of like that because it's tied in with the death and resurrection of Jesus. You are put under the water, immersed, and that's like death. And that's like going in a boat and shipping out, not knowing what was going to happen and when. And then when you get come out of the water, it speaks of the resurrection, the fresh start that God does for us. And so our salvation looks a lot like this. There's this miraculous transformation. But the truth is, does everyone get baptized? Does everyone accept Jesus Christ? No, most people don't. The principle is still there. But for him, the ones who do are worth it. There may be people in this room right now who have rejected Jesus Christ continuously. He still loves you. He still wants to be good to you. If there's bad things happening in your life, don't blame God, like God's hounding you. If he's hounding you, he's hounding you with his grace and his love. And sometimes we can't see it. But if you reject him, that's okay. He tried. And it's important for us to try it's important for us to show his love to people around us because even though they all won't get it, 
The few that will make it worth it. Hey, taking a risk with your life, reaching out to someone, maybe responding in a kind way to someone who isn't so kind to you or somebody who's just kind of put off and distant and you can tell they don't want to talk and you're kind of you know working on them for a while and just loving them and, and then seeing what God's going to do. Um, a lot of them will never turn. A lot of them will never get it. But if one will, what if God could use your life to bring one person to heaven for eternity? Would that not be worth taking guff from a lot of other people? We quit too soon. We give up on God's grace and the power of what he wants to do. And we need to understand that it's not about quantity. It's about quality. And God sees you and he sees your quality. Oh, he knows. Yeah, it's not everybody. I, I love over in Isaiah when God called Isaiah. And I had one of my professors at seminary call this scripture to my attention when I was frustrated with ministry. And he said, Isaiah, people are going to be really stubborn. And you're going to bang heads with them. And he said, ultimately, the fruit of your ministry is going to be this big terebinth tree that grows up. But he said, all that's going to be left is a stump. And he said, that stump is the people that I want to reach. And that's the way it is with our lives. We, we can plant seeds everywhere. We can reach out all over the place and be rejected by almost everyone. But we are not ministering for the tree. We're ministering for the stump. We're just hoping to have an impact on somebody. We're hoping that somebody could say, I understood God's grace because of the way you treated me. And that's really what what Peter is saying here. And then he talks about Jesus after he rose from the dead. He has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. Paul talked about this in Philippians 2 when he said, Jesus, he said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being God, being in the form of God, didn't think that was something to hang on to, but he emptied himself. And he humbled himself. And he became a man. He became a servant. He humbled himself to the death of a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what Peter's saying here. He says, trust me. Do what God is telling you to do. And you won't win them all. But the ones that you touch will be so worth it. And ultimately, this is going to lead to you feeling better than if you had lived the most selfish life that ends up in emptiness that you ever could. Put your heart where you want your treasure to be, and you'll see that God so makes it worthwhile. You know, I've had experiences where, I mean, most of the time when I minister to people, a lot of times I can just tell it's not working. And I spend an awful lot of time throwing out the seed, and a lot of times it's just frustrating. But once in a while, you see somebody who God just really gets a hold of their life. And not like the polite, hey, you've changed my life kind of stuff that, that you get a lot of times from people who are well-meaning, and I thank God for that. But there are times when I can just look at somebody and see the change. I can see it on their face. And there's nothing that's more rewarding than that. I don't ever think about 
well, it's about time you came around. I really invested in you. I, I sh- you sure made me work hard enough. No, anytime it works, you go, I am so incredibly blessed to be able to do something that's going to last forever. And, and that's what Peter's trying to get across. He says, I know this is risky, and I know it hurts, and I, and I know that suffering will sometimes be involved, Get your eye on the prize. Look at the big picture and realize this is how God does amazing things in people's lives and he'll use you to do it. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that people took chances with each of us. The people reached out to us and and they weren't put off by our hard exterior. They weren't put off by our sin, by the fact that we were resistant But there were some who loved us. And above all else, you loved us while we were yet sinners. So God, I pray that we will step past the risk factor, that we will be willing to reach out and take a chance, knowing full well that it doesn't work most of the time. You're God, and what you do for people doesn't work most of the time because you gave us choice. But God, please help us to be faithful and to be ready. And if somebody notices that they are tripping out on how we are so unlike other people because we're so much nicer, help us to be ready to explain that that works for them too. Please use us and help us not to lose heart. Help us not to give up. Help us to be willing to do what it takes to get the job done of bringing people into just an eternal healthy relationship and understanding of your love and helping be instrumental in leading people to having just a better life and a greater eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Ooh, I went long. Sorry about that. Um, You can pick which part of that you can ignore. Um, (laughs) But this I don't want you to miss. If you're here today and you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, you need to start over really bad. He loves you. Even though Christians have been bad examples to you, don't let that trip you up. I mean, yeah, most people are wrong most of the time, but there is a life that God has for you that's amazing. And I pray that you'll come to him today. There'll be people up here in the front who love praying for people for any reason. If you need prayer, come on down. But especially if it's time to start life over, 